Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. After the mass shooting at a music concert in Las Vegas and the church shooting in Sutherland Springs, Texas, one of the first questions law enforcement had to figure out was where the gunmen got their weapons. It's a key question for every gun-related crime. In those cases, it was easy to figure out. Stephen Paddock and Devin Patrick Kelly purchased their weapons at gun stores. But a lot of the time, the gun trail is murkier. Like in this case, which begins in my hometown, Jacksonville, Florida. It was early in the morning, back in August 2014, when a couple teens crept along driveways on Wind Cave Lane. They tugged on the handles of cars parked on the quiet street, looking for ones that were unlocked. When they'd find one, they'd rummage through the glove compartments and the consoles, taking whatever they can find, sunglasses, cash, and from one unlocked Honda Accord, a black 40 caliber pistol. That gun spent four months changing hands and making its way south nearly 200 miles before landing in Tarpon Springs, a small city in Florida's Tampa Bay region. That December, just days before Christmas, the police in Tarpon Springs get a call at 2 in the morning. It's from a resident at the Glen's Eureka Apartments complaining about music blaring from a car parked in front of the building. Are they they're in their vehicle or is it? Yeah, they're in their vehicle. And I've asked him to turn it down and I was basically flicked off. This happens like all the time and I'm over it. A few moments later, an officer on patrol named Charles Condick responds to the call. For him, this is just a routine noise complaint, the kind you get on the midnight shift all the time. What he doesn't know is that the car with the loud music belongs to a drug dealer named Marco Perea. He's at the apartment building to settle a score and is not expecting a cop to show up. When Marco sees Officer Kondek, he raises the stolen pistol from Jacksonville and pulls the trigger. One bullet hits Officer Kondek and kills him. Laura Morell covered Officer Kondek's death for the Tampa Bay Times in 2014 and afterwards started looking into the larger issue of stolen guns in Florida. She picks up the story from here. Officer Kondek left behind a wife, six kids, and his father, Charles Kondek Sr. His home is neat and tidy, tucked in a gated neighborhood. A flag with a picture of his son stands in his yard. And I have so much stuff that it's just overflowing. Inside, Charles has a shelf crammed with photos, candles, and pamphlets from commemorations for his son. Uh, Medal of Ultimate Sacrifice, Medal of Honor, Combat Cross, and the patch from Tarpon Springs Police Department. Uh, Purple Heart. That's his badge number was 285. You can just hear the New York police officer in Charles's voice. He's a big guy, tall and broad, with a tight haircut and mustache. He retired from the NYPD in 1990 and was proud to see his son join the force and follow in his footsteps. When Charles got the call that his son was shot, 
He couldn't drive to the hospital fast enough. He blew through traffic lights and ignored speed limits. But by the time he got there, it was too late. So I just fell on the floor, and that was... um, My blood pressure went sky high. I wanted to see him. I hadn't seen him in a while. And... um, um, what did the nurse tell you when when she was helping you after you fell? Oh, she um, said your son would bring every Saturday night. He works steady at midnight, so every Saturday night he'd bring a coffee for me and him. And for five years we'd sit there and have coffee and talk. And she was treating me when she was telling me that. And I wanted to go see him because I haven't seen him in a while. And as you can go in, but you can't touch him. The medical examiner hasn't been there yet. And uh, I went in the wheelchair because I was just, and I saw him for a couple of minutes and just told him I love him and I'm sorry for the way things happen. I tried to talk to the owner of the gun used in Officer Conduct's death, but he didn't return my calls or reply to my letters. But I did spend an afternoon in Jacksonville, where that gun and thousands of others like it have been stolen. Stop in the name of the law. How you doing? Good to you. I love doing that. 23 years is some of the time, first time I've had to do it. I'm Greg Burton, zone commander for this area. Assistant Chief Burton is with the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office or JSO. He's at the entrance of a local gated community, chatting with residents as they come home from work. We're just out doing a walk and talk, meeting the neighbors, letting the people know that if you don't want to get your cars broken into or stolen, simply lock them. That's the key. It sounds so simple, but police records show that over and over again, people leave guns in their cars and don't bother locking them. I will do so. Give you one of these and give you one for your friend. Okay. Okay. In Jacksonville alone, I found that more than a thousand guns were taken from cars over the last two years. Chief Burton's campaign is an attempt to preempt these thefts. Oh, thank you. All right, you take care. (laughs) Take care. So many people, when they purchase a gun, they don't really take on what the real responsibility of a gun ownership is. That's Detective Tom Martin. He and Detective Dale Groves are with JSO's Auto Burglary Task Force. Can you guys talk about the MO that's used here to break into cars? And A lot of times they're in a stolen car. Uh, someone will drop off a carload of kids in the back of the neighborhood. Those kids will fan out. They'll pull on door handles. And uh, whatever cars open, they go in and they see what they can get. Uh, I just interviewed a kid yesterday morning. He was under 14, and he had a gun on him. And when I asked him, he confessed. Uh, I interviewed him 12 days earlier. Same kid. And arrested him. When I first started working on this story, Charles Conduct Sr. agreed to talk to me because he hoped it would prevent what happened to his son from happening to anyone else. But it's a hard problem to fix. We calculated that in Florida, at least 82,000 guns stolen in the last 10 years are still missing. What do you uh, remember thinking when you found out the gun was taken out of an unlocked car, when, when you found out that detail? Well, I thought that the owner of the car and the gun should face some kind of consequence or should be arrested for, I said stupidity, I know there's no such law, but negligence, if he didn't have that gun, if if he locked his door, the odds are my son might still be alive now. But not everyone thinks the burden of responsibility should be on gun owners. I, I certainly believe, and Florida Carey believes, that yes, if you have a gun in your car, you should lock your car. Absolutely. This is Eric Friday, general counsel of the gun rights group Florida Carry. But if you fail to do so, should there be criminal sanctions for failing to do so? And my answer to that is no. Eric says the answer has two parts. First, crack down on the criminals stealing the guns. Second, loosen restrictions on where gun owners can bring their weapons. If we do that, he says there'd be less need to store guns in cars and fewer thefts. 
We don't hold people responsible for the theft of any other property that is stolen from them. So I'm not sure why we have so many pushes to treat gun owners as anything other than the victims they are when their property is stolen. I disagree with his statement that gun owners' broad context should be treated as victims when they may have negligently or even intentionally failed to secure a deadly instrument. That's State Senator Daryl Rusan, who sits on the Criminal Justice Committee. He and other lawmakers wanted a special session on guns last year, but they couldn't get enough votes to schedule the meeting. In a state like Florida, where the National Rifle Association has so much political clout, new gun regulations are almost guaranteed to hit a brick wall. Some would want Florida to be the wild, wild west, everyone double-packing. But in a real sense, what are we protecting ourselves from, us? Rusan says he wants tougher security measures, and not just for gun owners, but also for the other big source of stolen guns, gun dealers, who over the past few years have been targeted by thieves. You can see a truck ram through the front of the store and several suspects jump out and go inside. Just this is TV footage from Channel 10 WTSP of a burglary at the Tampa Arms Company from last November. That means dozens of guns ended up in the hands of thieves and there's no telling where they ended up. So tonight... In Florida, more than four times as many firearms were stolen from gun dealers in 2016 than in 2012. That doesn't surprise Jason Mueller, co-owner of Value Cash Pawn in Altamont Springs. Okay, here we have a red Kia Sportage backing up to our shop, putting their license plate right up to the window. Very nice of them. Jason sells a little bit of everything, from watches to laptops, guitars to guns. His shop was broken into twice last year. He's showing me surveillance footage of the first break-in. Oh, yeah. Breaks the glass. They all run in. Little guy jumps over the counter, takes the two guns. You can hear my alarm just blaring. And they were in and out in about 22 seconds. And this is what started me going gray and uh, losing my hair. Jason is quick to make a joke and laughs off the first burglary. It was an amateur job, he says, clearly the work of some kids. They only made off with two antique guns that didn't even work. But he didn't laugh three months later when he was hit again, this time by pros. The burglars turned the security cameras off and pried the steel gate off the door. They broke into the back room where Jason stored his guns. They didn't discriminate when they went in there. <laughs> It was everything we had, literally, like anything, shotguns, rifles, handguns, revolvers, pistols, everything. It was one of the largest gunshot burglaries in Florida last year. The thieves stole 69 guns. Only about a dozen have been recovered. Afterwards, Jason invested in new security, like safes, which he hopes will be enough. But there aren't any laws regulating security at these stores. And some gun dealers don't bother to lock up their weapons after closing time, making them prime targets for thieves. I wake up at 3 o'clock almost every night to check the cameras. Once it happened, and, and I've been woken up by those phone calls saying, you know, we have a glass break sensor in your front of your store. Would you like us to send, you know, police? That has just stressed me out so much that I can't even help it anymore. I just naturally wake up at that time to make sure everything's okay. And I don't... My wife is like, what the hell are you doing awake right now? I'm like, I don't check the cameras. Jason says gunshot break-ins have gotten so bad, he wants to see lawmakers impose security regulations. But politicians are stuck in gridlock. I've argued it till I'm blue in the face, and I've seen the bumper stickers that, that say, you'll pry my gun from my dead hands, you know, which takes it to the extreme. Senator Rusan says the state legislature has taken things to the extreme. Back in 1987, Florida passed a law that prevents local governments from controlling guns in their communities. The states essentially tied the hands of towns and counties to make their own gun rules.
Officer Kondek was shot three years ago, on December 21st, 2014. Marco Perilla, his killer, faces the death penalty. Since it's a capital case, there are lots of hearings, and Charles Kondek Sr. goes to each one religiously with his girlfriend Irene. Marco's trial date has been pushed back a couple times. Charles thinks it could be delayed again, since Marco's defense has asked the judge for more time to prepare. It's beyond frustrating for a family who, at this point, is only looking for closure. To me, it's stupid. I mean, I can see the state's point, they want to avoid any way of uh, having them appeal the verdict, you know. But he caused the whole thing by shooting my son, so now he gets everything he wants. And, uh, but with his long arrest record and everything, this should all should have been done already. But we have no choice but to keep going and going and going until it's all over. Just in the last few weeks, this case seems closer to being over. Marco Perea pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and is now awaiting sentencing. Our story was produced by Anna Hamilton and reported by Laura Morell of the Tampa Bay Times. Laura is one of Reveal's investigative fellows. The fellowship, supported by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and the Democracy Fund, provides support and training to journalists of color to create investigative reporting projects in partnership with their news outlets. A lot of police departments say the key to making their city safer is getting guns off the street. So why are some departments doing just the opposite? The answer, when we come back. This is Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion— But we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, the longstanding problem of discriminatory policing against religious and racial minorities in France. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch Season 2 wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Just like the police in Florida, departments all across the country are trying to get guns off the street. Some are organizing gun buybacks, like this one that took place this summer on a 100-degree Saturday afternoon in Fort Worth, Texas. It's in a supermarket parking lot. Police have set up an RV and traffic cones, and a slow stream of cars pulls up with people wanting to get rid of their old guns, hunting rifles and rusty revolvers. Police huddle for shade under a couple trees. Lieutenant Greg Weathers is in charge. Yeah, we actually have the uh, cars pull in. The officers will hand them a ticket. They will take the weapon. They'll make sure the weapon is secure and unloaded. Then they'll process it in. Then they will receive a $50 gift card once all the uh, processing and verification has been done. For this man, the whole thing takes about five minutes. Nothing to it. Like I say, no questions asked, no nothing. Just uh, come, uh, give me a gun, and take your money and go. (laughs) It couldn't be simpler. But as it turns out, what's going on in Fort Worth is not as simple as it seems. For one thing, police have competition. Just a few feet away, there's groups of guys holding signs that say cash for guns and waving fistfuls of money. More than 50. More than 50. More than 50. What do you got? Just an old shotgun. Can we take a look at it? Yeah. Have a beating more. These guys say they're gun dealers. They're trying to outbid the police for the guns, and it's working. 
Reporter Alan Stevens is also there that day. He's been looking at police gun programs and chats up some of these guys. So when you hear this, uh, some of the rhetoric about getting guns off the street from the you know, police chiefs and departments like Fort Worth right here, do you think that's an admirable mission? Do you think this is a waste of time? It's definitely possible for it to be both. I mean, in practicality, whether or not this is useful to, to the public, it's debatable. So what if I told you that when it comes to their duty weapons, that Fort Worth Police Department actually sells those back to the public? So they're putting guns on the street, just like they're trying to take guns off the street here. So it doesn't make sense. They're, they're doing something counter to what they're saying they want to do today. Hypocrisy. <laughs> Yep, that's right. When it comes to their own guns, the ones carried by police officers, the department sells those back to the public. Alon wondered if those gun sales undermine police efforts to fight gun crime. So he looked into how they work. Fort Worth is not alone when it comes to selling its guns. This happens all over the country. Take, for instance, this ad from a gun store in North Carolina. Hey, everybody. Ben with Classic Firearms here. And we have a really nice police law enforcement trade-in handgun to show you today. The mags release just very smooth and beautifully. They're on sale right now. Merry Christmas, folks. We and I wanted to know how many departments sell their guns in my home state of Texas. I requested records from the 50 largest law enforcement agencies in the state, and I found in the last decade, 21 of them sold weapons, putting more than 10,000 guns back on the streets. Fort Worth alone sold more than 1,000. I wanted to find out why. It took a lot of phone calls, but I eventually reached... Sergeant Mark, M-A-R-C, Pavero, P-O-V-E-R-O, and I'm a public information officer with Fort Worth Police Department. I ask why his department sells its used weapons. He says they need the cash. Selling their old guns helps them pay for new and better ones. As far as our firearms are concerned, you know, we always want to have uh, the best firearms that are, that are operational and safe. Obviously, police officers have to have re- reliable equipment. So anytime that equipment uh, gets to an age where, where we've agreed to uh, have it sold back to the distributor, then we're going to do that. The distributor is actually a gun store, which is an important distinction for Pavero. The way he sees it, technically, they aren't selling guns back to the public. I can assure you nothing ever goes straight from the police department to a person's hand. That's not how we operate. But that is how the distributors operate. These gun stores turn around and sell police guns to the public at a discount. Now, remember, we're talking about 10,000 guns in Texas alone, enough to arm an entire army division, making it pretty likely that a police gun could fall into the hands of a criminal, right? Let me just say, I'm being real patient with you, all right, because I know where you're trying to go with it. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to buy into, you know, let's get into a conversation about morals and, and, and ethics, all right? You know, I'm a moral and ethical person in my mind. But let's let's stick with the facts. We had a contract with the distributor, and we abided by it. Fair enough. I wondered if selling their used guns raises ethical issues for other police departments. Here's Chief Greg Stevens from the Lubbock Police. The decisions I make are, are data-driven. I'm not a knee-jerk uh, person, and I make very few emotional decisions. I fully recognize the fact that... Um, Absolutely one of our, our guns could fall into the hands of, of, uh, of a criminal. You know, that thought, that emotion, uh, that chance is, isn't enough for me to change what is, in essence, a business decision. But hard data is. And just like Chief Stevens, I wanted to get real-world information about whether old police guns are used in crimes. So I go to the remote hills of West Virginia to find a guy named Scott Thomason. Uh, yeah, I'm here. Where um, I'm, I think I'm here. I, I, I think. No, you're not. I think you passed it. Oh, I passed it. Okay. Okay. So I'm for decades, Thomason worked undercover as an agent for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Now he's retired to a more genteel life, nestled in a modern homestead on a large plot of land. When I finally find him, I'm greeted by his two feisty dogs. 
Hey. How are you doing? How are you doing? These days, he looks like someone who'd be a high school football coach. Big, stocky, with a mean mustache. But years ago, he worked as an undercover arms trafficker. He remembers brokering a deal with a man named Chris, a neo-Nazi who robbed a cartel and was looking to offload guns and drugs. I wanted to buy a gun, and um, I wanted to see if he had any other cocaine he could sell. Um, now, he said he didn't have any other cocaine any, anymore, but they, they might have a gun. I ended up meeting him, I think it was about three or four hours later, uh, in a hotel parking lot, and uh, he uh, sold me a, a Smith & Wesson revolver, a big chrome, um, shiny handgun revolver. You know, it's kind of an old-school firearm, and but I, I do notice there's a, a San Diego Sheriff's Department uh, symbol on it. Scott closes the deal. Then he calls the San Diego Sheriff's Department, and he drops a bomb on them. He found one of their guns in the hands of a drug dealer. And there was a long silence and pause on the phone, and I said, I'm calling to find out if, if this was stolen, if there's uh, uh, some crimes associated with it, or the set of circumstances why I'd be in possession of this firearm. San Diego looks into it and discovers the weapon was one of many that the sheriff's department had sold. They call back Thomason and tell him they're reversing their policy of selling guns. They were horrified that a revolver that was once carried by a police officer could have injured another law enforcement officer or somebody else because it was in the hands of, of criminals. Thomason is by no means anti-gun. He owns weapons and teaches shooting courses. We even do some target practice on his property, where he shows me a favorite gun used by police. So we've got a, a, a Glock 23. It's a 40 caliber. It's uh, extremely reliable, extremely durable, uh, and in a stressful situation, it can operate uh, off of rote memory and through training. Which he says is exactly why criminals like it too. And police aren't just selling handguns. In the course of my reporting, I found that police departments all over the country sell, well, everything. Shotguns and precision sniper rifles, assault weapons like the AR-15 and MP5. One Texas Sheriff's Department would sell fully automatic Uzis for just $300. St. Louis sold Tommy guns from the 1920s. If you want it, they had it. And like the Lubbock police chief, I wanted to see if I could find out how often these guns show up in murders, robberies, and assaults. What if I told you I was going to string that thread together to find out how many sold police guns ended up in crimes? What would you say to that endeavor? Good luck. Good luck. I decide to go to the source. I request information from ATF headquarters, what they call trace data, and I wait for two months before they tell me they lost my request. Six months later and still no data. But they do invite us to visit their National Tracing Center in West Virginia, where hundreds of employees perform traces, tracking guns used in crimes back to where they came from. We sent a producer who joined a group of other journalists touring the facility. A big part of what we do here is, is kind of like, it's kind of like shift work. Um, Neil Trotman with the ATF leads the tour. He shows the group a room that looks like a call center. Hi, it's Dana Coyne from the ATF National Tracing Center. I have a trace for you. Thank you. It's a 9mm pistol. There are also rooms where agents scroll through microfilm and sift through boxes upon boxes of paperwork. The, the building manager at one point in time, probably about 10 years ago or so, determined that capacity to be, to be about 10,000 boxes. Uh, we started having a safety issue where the floors were kind of buckling a little bit. So they started bringing in shipping containers, like what you see on tractor-trailer trucks. We're actually, I just, I just double-checked, we're up to 28 of these shipping containers now, each containing another 500 or 1,000 boxes, somewhere in that range. Back inside, Agent Trotman explains why the process is so archaic. Essentially, uh, what, what we're prohibited from doing is establishing any sort of a searchable or perceived uh, database of, of gun ownership. 
Um, and, and working within the, let me start that part over. Let me start that over. Okay. What we, what we, um, what we, oh, I'm trying to think. It's a question that touches on the sensitive politics around gun control. The, the law, the law restricts, man, I don't even want to say it that way. Um, the ATF is prohibited from creating anything resembling a searchable database of gun buyers. It's tied to this fear that such a database could be used to disarm Americans. So the ATF is stuck in an analog time capsule. And when it comes to the data I'm looking for, which could show how many police weapons are picked up at crime scenes, even if they tried to figure that out, they couldn't tell me. But it wasn't always that way. You see, back in the late 1990s, tracing information was public. There was a series of articles about police guns and crimes, like the one with ATF agent Thomason. Recycled cop guns were showing up everywhere. Gang murders in New York, a homicide in St. Louis, a white supremacist used one to fire on a Jewish community center. In 1998, the Denver Post estimated that police guns were found in the hands of criminals three times a day. Cities also start using this tracing information to file lawsuits against gun stores and gun makers. Gun manufacturers and lobbyists launch a counterstrike. They enlist Congress and push back with new rules on guns. Gun sellers can no longer be taken to court. A 10-year ban on assault weapons is lifted. And most importantly, they go after the very information itself. Through something called the TRT Amendment, tracing data cannot be released to the public. To this day, the National Rifle Association contends that tracing data serves no useful purpose. These days, when it comes to used cop guns and crimes, all the ATF can say is, yeah, they see them in traces. But the details, they're top secret. And we asked Neil Trotman if even the police, say in Lubbock, could get data to figure out where their old cop guns are going. Actually, with, with, with the regulations as they are and the laws as they are, I'm not sure that we could. But that might be something that would be discussed at a higher level because it's among law enforcement and it's, it's with our law enforcement partners. For chiefs like Greg Stevens, that lack of information, it puts them in a tough position. Do they sell guns to make ends meet, possibly at the expense of public safety? A few days after 58 people were killed at a music festival in Las Vegas, I asked Chief Stevens whether mass shootings like that one make him think twice about selling his used police guns. It, w- it would certainly give, give, me, uh, it would give me pause. Um, I, I, I can tell you that this this interview and, and the story that you're doing, um, it, it'll, I will reflect on it and it'll make me uh, certainly consider that and uh, certainly the possibility that they could be used in the future in, in some instance like the Vegas event, uh, the, the tragedy in Vegas uh, is certainly something to look at. Alon Stevens is a reporter for the Texas Standard, a statewide news show on public radio. He's also a Reveal investigative fellow. We're still looking for answers on just how many police guns end up in crimes. After many months of back-and-forth phone calls and emails, the ATF went silent on our request for data. We're now suing the Department of Justice for this information. Remember how the ATF said they weren't allowed to collect and analyze gun data? For a long time, the government didn't collect data when people died in car crashes. How data changed an industry and saved lives. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. In 1966, President Lyndon Baines Johnson stepped into the Rose Garden and said it was time to face a shocking problem. For years now, we've tolerated a raging epidemic. An epidemic that had killed nearly three times as many people as all America's wars, and yet, at a national level, was basically unstudied and unregulated. We are going to cut down this senseless loss of lives. He was talking not about guns, but about car crashes, what he called highway disease. We're going to find out more about highway disease. 
and we're going to find out how to cure highway disease. 50 years later, we may not have found the cure, but we've made progress. The car crash death rate is down nearly 80%. Gun deaths, on the other hand, have gone up a bit, which is why when you hear about gun control on, say, a CNN panel, UC Santa Barbara, Sandy Hook, Virginia Tech, Columbine, the list grows. Somebody brings it up. It's an interesting analogy, and it's actually quite telling. In this case, legal expert Michael Waldman. You know, we affected who could drive. We lifted the drinking age to 21 so people wouldn't drive recklessly. We put in airbags. We changed car design. In other words, we changed cars and made them safer. And, you know, the question is, are there ways to do that also with guns? To answer that question, his reveals Stan Alcorn. Every time someone dies, by gun or car, there's a group of people who rush to the scene to figure out exactly how they died. Is there any accidents working right now, Joe? They're called police officers. I was going to go over and talk about our reports and this and that, but maybe we can go right out. Is something going on? Um, I rode along with New York State Trooper Frank Bandiro. Oh, and this is something else I want to show you. Mostly to see the paperwork. Mm -hmm. Our accident report is right here. Because one reason for the fall in car deaths starts with filling in the boxes on that form. These mysterious boxes you see over here, they mean nothing to you. They mean a lot to us. The boxes are where he writes down the weather, where he draws a bird's eye cartoon of the wreck, where he identifies the accident's primary cause. And so you've got like a whole list of possible... Oh, yeah. Pauses, I don't know if you can read those little things, but there's a million. I mean, to try to cover so all like the bases. you got like 68 there. Animal action. Can exactly. Be Say a deer is crossing a roadway. I tried to tell my wife the safest thing to do is to slow down as, as much as you can without being unsafe mm-hmm. and drive straight through the animal. Really? Yes. Now, everything cops do involves paperwork. Interviews, photographs, reports. But one difference between guns and cars is for a gun homicide... That paperwork pretty much stays at the police station. dangerous. This one turned out to be a fender bender. But if it were one of the more than 30,000 fatal car accidents that happen each year, I'd stay in here for now. The information gathered on the side of the road would go from the boxes on that form into a federal database the Fatality Analysis Reporting System. Which doesn't necessarily sound like it would save lives until you meet someone who uses it. Hi, Hi. Matt Brumbelow. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Matt Brumbelow is an engineer at the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, or IIHS. On his desk, he has both a car headlight and a giant paper book of federal regulations. Just reading the federal register. Yeah. It's my fun pastime. A few years back, Matt was on his computer looking at that government database of fatal accidents. Let me pull it up. And he noticed something. People dying in head-on crashes, in cars that were rated safe in head-on crash tests. And a lot of these crashes had a distinctive look. The passenger side was okay, but the corner in front of the driver looked like a giant had smashed it with a hammer, pushing the bumper back past the engine, almost to the steering wheel. Did it take some time to recognize, or was it, like, immediate? It's fairly immediate. He immediately recognized that this was a kind of crash these otherwise safe cars just weren't designed for, which, to Matt, was an opportunity. We can probably do something about it. We can design a test. It's called the Small Overlap Crash Test, and they've been doing it since 2012. I watched the test of a BMW SUV called the X1, starting with a technician measuring the crash test dummy's position. Rim to abdomen. Find the abdomen. Down to the millimeter. Two, six, six. While engineers from BMW looked on. So you're basically here just to make sure they're doing everything right? No, they're doing always everything right. (laughs) (laughs) No, just watching. Watching closely, though. BMW cares so much about this test. After an earlier model got a lower rating when the dummy's foot got crushed, the car was redesigned. Yeah, it's it's always uh, designed for the new requirements, so 
if there is a new requirement from the IHS, we have to redesign our cars. Yeah. We're done, right? Let's walk out of here. And so when we walk into the echoey crash hall for the test itself, I feel like I'm seeing how a car gets safer in just 19 seconds. You've got all these HD cameras funded by the insurance companies. You've got BMW engineers nervously watching from a catwalk up above. All this money and expertise fixated on this black SUV that's being dragged up to a speed of 40 miles per hour and then released into a steel barrier made specially for this test. And it all started with Matt Brumbelow, the engineer, going through that government crash data. How important are these federal databases of real-world car crashes? Yeah, they're really indispensable. Without real crash data, we would just be guessing. Government crash data is the foundation not just of vehicle design, but of speed limits and drunk driving laws. And so for decades, public health experts like Professor Stephen Terrett have been calling for an equivalent database, but for guns. Now, even though the number of motor vehicle-related deaths and gun deaths in the United States are approximately the same every year, we have data for one, we don't have data for the other. Stephen had used the government crash data to study airbags and child restraint laws. But when he shifted his focus to guns, the difference was stark. Instead of just downloading data, he had to gather his own from coroners and police departments. So we don't have the benefit of doing analyses about gun deaths that we've had about car deaths. And in my opinion, that's one of the reasons why we're not seeing the reduction in gun deaths that we saw in car deaths over the last couple of decades. As an example, he brings up the cause of three out of every five gun deaths in the U.S., suicide. One thing public health researchers have been able to prove is that if you have access to a gun, you are more likely to kill yourself because it makes any attempt at suicide more deadly. But when it comes to how suicidal people get those guns, are they buying them? Are they borrowing them? If they were smart guns that could only be used by their owners, how many lives would that save? Stephen says we just don't have the data to give very good answers. There's been a culture that's built up around guns of not collecting information, whereas the exact opposite has occurred with cars. But this culture of data-driven safety engineering, it did not always exist for cars. And the way it came about may be the most surprising gun parallel of all. It starts in the early 20th century, when car safety, if it was discussed at all, was all about the driver. Unfortunately, there are drivers amongst us who are poor sports. There were more than 50,000 yearly deaths, but they were blamed on the nut behind the wheel. They are the wreckers who cause the accidents that maim and kill. In other words, cars don't kill people. People kill people. The whole notion that the machine could have some sort of impact on the likelihood of you surviving a car crash wasn't even on the radar during the first half of the 20th century. This is Amy Gangloff, a historian who traces the auto safety idea back to the research project of a self-taught scientist named Hugh DeHaven. You tell me how it started. No, you, you don't know really how the project started. No, I do not. This is an old cassette tape I tracked down of Hugh being interviewed. The project really started in 1917 and 18 when I was uh, flying for the Royal Flying Corps. The Canadian Air Force in World War I. When he was just like 24 hours away from being commissioned, he had a horrific plane accident. I ruptured my liver. I ruptured my pancreas. I ruptured my gallbladder. Good. I ruptured my kidneys. While he was in the hospital, he had his kind of moment of his epiphany. I had no loss of consciousness or any head injury, but I did have these abdominal injuries. He concluded that there was a sharp knob on his safety belt that had probably led to his injuries. 
And so we started thinking that perhaps we can package human beings better. Not just in planes, but in cars, too. He started by crash-testing objects, dropping eggs onto foam and rubber mats from higher and higher heights. Then he turned to human beings, looking into newspaper stories of people surviving miraculous falls off cliffs and out of buildings. And finally, to see exactly how people were dying in car crashes, he started calling up hospitals and coroners and police officers, most of whom thought he was nuts. Why was it thought to be so nutty? So crazy, Mr. Well, I, what, what, it's, a, it's, it's a very simple thing. People in those days and people to this day feel that the accident causes the injury. He would prove the cars themselves caused injuries because of how they were designed. For example, in 1953, he partnered with the Indiana State Police. And with their photos and reports, historian Amy Gangloff says he was able to isolate which parts of the car were the most dangerous? Yeah, he's diagnosing exactly what's causing the injuries inside the car. And and what does he find? What exactly does he find is causing most of these injuries? The steering column. Um, the steering column itself was not collapsible. So if you had a front-end collision, the steering column would push up and might even push through somebody's chest. The solution was a collapsible steering column which would go on to save 79,989 lives as of 2012, according to a government study, more than any technology except the seatbelt. But they wouldn't become standard equipment until 1967, more than a decade after Hugh DeHaven's study. It took more than research. It took politics. Do you want to have my name so you remember who I am? (laughs) Sure, we can do that. You want to say who you are? Uh, This is Joan Claybrook. Joan Claybrook came to Washington, D.C. in 1965 to work for an idealistic freshman congressman from Georgia. He was concerned about the kids in his neighborhood being killed in car crashes, and he had read Unsafe at Any Speed. Unsafe at Any Speed was an unlikely bestseller by a car safety-obsessed young lawyer named Ralph Nader. Nader built on Hugh DeHaven's research and turned it into a scorching indictment of the auto industry. He showed that not only did car companies know about safety technology, like the collapsible steering column, they had the patents. They just weren't using them. There are very few books that have such an instrumental impact. And uh, that's why the auto industry hired a gumshoe to trail Nader and get some dirt on him and try and discredit him. This General Motors smear campaign backfired so badly that the company president had to apologize in front of the Senate. Instead of turning up dirt on Nader, it made GM look dirty. And it made Nader's congressional testimony on things like suspension systems into front-page news. Car companies had energized a movement to regulate car companies. And that movement succeeded. Distinguished... uh members of the Congress, the administration, and friends. That speech LBJ gave in 1966 was to announce the signing of two bills. The Traffic Safety Act will ensure safer, better protected cars. They created a new federal agency, what's now the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, with the power to make car companies install seatbelts and collapsible steering columns, and to set up those national databases of crash data. Thank each of you very much. And they did it with nearly unanimous bipartisan support, which may be the part of the auto safety story that's hardest to imagine being repeated with guns today. Here's Joan Claybrook. I think that um, before Congress got active in doing anything on guns, the NRA got its claws out. They have played a a strong role in uh, defeating candidates. And the auto industry's never been that successful at it because... To be anti-car safety is, you know, against motherhood and apple pie. Congress has treated guns very differently than it treated cars, carving out exemptions from regulation, lawsuits, and data collection. No one understands that contrast better than Stephen Terrett, the gun safety researcher. But of all the people I talked to, he was also the most hopeful, which I found, frankly, kind of hard to understand. What lets you still be optimistic looking at all of those factors. 
you're trying your best and you're doing a fairly good job in making me sink into some swamp of despair, but I'm afraid you're not going to succeed in that. I'm not going to do it. And one of the reasons that I'm not going to do it is because I understand something about how public health has made progress over the centuries. He points out it took more than 50 years to really reduce smoking in this country. And even the history of car safety that seemed to move so fast in the 60s had decades where there were nothing but setbacks. Progress in public health just takes a really long time. So we persevere and, and we wait and we wait until the time is right so that something becomes politically feasible that maybe four years earlier was not politically feasible. So yes, we will make guns safer consumer products, and that in turn will reduce the incidence of gun deaths in the United States. It's a matter of waiting until the time is right. After we finished talking, I thanked Stephen Terrett for his time. And he told me not to worry about taking up an hour. He's been waiting for 40 years. That story was from Reveal's Stan Alcorn. That idea, that it's a matter of waiting until the time is right, is something a lot of people are struggling with. After every mass shooting, the same thing happens. One side wants gun control, the other side says it's too soon to talk about guns in the midst of a tragedy. But after the mass shooting in Las Vegas this year, there seemed to be a moment of bipartisan support. Not for more research or a new federal agency to regulate guns, not even close, but for a ban on bump stocks. That's the device that allowed the shooter to fire nine rounds a second into the crowd below his hotel room. But two months later, efforts to pass the bump stock bill have stalled. And Congress, well, they've moved on. Today's show was edited by Taki Telenitis with help from Andy Donahue. Thanks to Kat Shuknit, reporter Ryan Bank in Jacksonville, producer John O'Leary in Washington, D.C., and the Medical Center Archives of New York Presbyterian, Wild Cornell. Mwenda Inahosa is our production manager. Michael Corey is our data editor. Our lead sound designer and engineer is Jim Briggs. He had help this week from Catherine Raimondo and Ramteen Arablui. Amy Powell's our editor-in-chief. Suzanne Reber is our executive editor. And our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story.